0: We are in week five of our summer series, The Divine Pivot, and we've been exploring several, what I call, irresistible interruptions. Uh, places in Scripture where you see the words, but God, and how they change everything. I was reading this week where Dr. Martin Lloyd Jones, a pastor, uh, who was the minister at Westminster Chapel in London, he wrote about these two words. He said, "Uh, these two words, in a sense, contain the whole of the gospel. Well, I agree with that. It's a beautiful summarizing way to just understand mentally and emotionally what God does for us. And so we're looking at these different but God passages. What do you say we dive into the one for this week? And I want to do that by serving up an easy poetic riddle for you. I wrote this a couple of weeks ago in light of this message. So it's not meant to stump you. I want you to get the answer and you will. It's pretty simple. Here's how it goes. I am the dreaded leveler of everyone on earth. You're headed to my appointment from the moment of your birth. I can't be bought, am often fault, and should not be sought. Who am I? And your answer is Death, exactly. It's not hard to figure out. Today we're going to talk about death for a bit. In fact, barring the return of Christ, death will come to every single one of us physically, with no exceptions. No matter what you do, where you go, or who you are in life, death will equalize all of us in the end. We'll all be dust. You see, death disregards address, position, ethnicity, status, accomplishment, achievement, a host of other factors. It disregards every one of those and it levels the playing field. No one here can do anything about this fact that you are, from the moment you're born, marching towards death. But God can. In fact, only God can. And this is precisely the point of our take home verse in Psalm 49. So make sure you find that chapter in your Bible and with one eye on the screen and one eye in your text. Can you read this with me? Here's our take home verse from this chapter, our fifth but God irresistible interruption. Psalm 49:15. with me church together. But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. This singular powerful verse is tucked inside of a chapter, really, that is about death, but most specifically about how God's life overrides what comes to all humans, which is death. And what's more interesting is this psalm is actually a riddle. It would be a musical riddle. You'll see that in a few moments in the first few verses. And so that's why I began with a riddle. I wanted you to kind of get into the mode of this genre, the the kind of flavor of the text. This is a riddle put to music, written by the sons of Korah. Uh, They were the either worship leaders or perhaps songwriters or maybe the singers in the nation of Israel, the children of Israel. This song was written by them. And so why don't we examine this riddle song and let's squeeze as much as we can from it about this death that, that God rescues us from by his life. I see the chapter really playing out in three sections. We're gonna look at the runway for the riddle. We'll just take a few minutes to do that. We'll spend the bulk of our time looking at the reality of the riddle and then we'll close with seeing the response to the riddle. Let's begin by seeing, first of all, in verses 1 through 4, the runway for the riddle, which is essentially, he's calling everyone to listen. Look what the Bible would say to us, Psalm 49, verses 1 through 4. Hear this, all peoples, give ear all inhabitants of the world, both low and high, rich and poor together. My mouth shall speak wisdom, the meditation of my heart shall be understanding. I will incline my ear to a proverb. I will solve my riddle to the music of the lyre. And so here we have textual indication that he's drafting and composing somewhat of a musical riddle. You could call it a proverb. The words there simply mean a a dark saying, hard questions. He's putting it to music, and he's asking everyone to listen. Do you see that in verse 1, the repeated use of the word all? Hear this, all peoples, give ear all inhabitants... And then he specifies who all is in verse 2, low and high, rich and poor. It's simply a way to say this. There are no exemptions. This applies to everyone. No exclusions. Everyone give ear and listen. So no one in this room this morning is exempt from what we're going to learn, all right? We all need to pay attention. And we're going to pay attention to verses 5 through 15 mainly because it contains the bulk of the instruction and the observation, what I call the reality of the riddle. He begins in verse 5. Follow along with me. I'll read through the end of verse 15. He says, Why should I fear in times of trouble when the iniquity of those who cheat me surrounds me, those who trust in their wealth and boast of the abundance of their riches? Truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. For the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice that he should live on forever and never see the pit. For he sees that even the wise die The fool and the stupid alike must perish and leave their wealth to others. Their graves are their homes forever, their dwelling places to all generations, though they called lands by their own names. Man and his pomp will not remain, he is like the beasts that perish. And this is the path of those who have foolish confidence. Yet after them, people approve of their boasts, Selah. Like sheep, they are appointed for Sheol. Death shall be their shepherd, and the upright shall rule over them in the morning. Their form shall be consumed in Sheol with no place to dwell. Say with me, church, verse 15 together. But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. These 11 verses really show us the bulk of of this musical riddle. And the reality of this riddle, I think, in in four simple words would be this, that no one but God. We'll extrapolate that, but just kind of keep these four words in mind. No one but God. Remember, the runway for the riddle was this, everyone listen. The reality of the the riddle is this, no one but God. And what's happening here is really he's he's asking himself a question. And I think what's happening in verse five is this. he's, He's admitting there are times he has this unfounded and yet frustrating fear that perhaps death plays favorites. That he knows in his heart that's not true. And you can sense that in the ambiance of the text. Verse seven, he gives the answer. But for a moment, he says, you know, there are times I look around and and I feel like I'm close to evil. You see that in verse five, the word there's trouble, it means evil, perhaps uh, brought on by others. And it's the kind of trouble and the evil that would lead, lead you possibly to death. He said, I feel like I'm hedging that way. And yet those around me, in their riches and their arrogance and in their accomplishments, they seem like they're not even close to death. So he thinks, why why do I fear that? I think he knows he shouldn't, but he's admitting to us. There are moments that he wonders like, man, perhaps the one with the most toys actually does win. Maybe there's something to this get all you can before you go kind of theory, right? And I think we would all admit there are times that we, we have had second thoughts or we've had those moments of tempting wonderings where like, is this really worth it? That's what he's doing here. He's asking this honest question. (laughs) I know I shouldn't fear, but sometimes I do, and it feels like there are those who can cheat death, like they barter with it, like they negotiate, like maybe they actually can get the upper hand. Now, I want to answer this question first. Why do we sometimes think that? Why are we tempted with this unfounded and frustrating fear that sometimes is silent and private, but we know we have it? Here's the answer, I think, based in the text. Our human natural mind sees external things and we falsely think they can solve eternal issues. And no one here would say that's true, but in moments of of temptation and wondering, we often look on the externals and think, oh, that's what it takes to solve the eternal. But that's a false thought; It's a myth. And this is why the writer here is clear about the reality of the riddle, that that no one wins the battle with death but God. This is why verse seven begins with the word truly. Do you see that in your text there? It's an emphatic way to say, guys, I know we've been tempted with this thought. You may look around and think that externals can solve the eternal. But the truth is, truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. Do you see that in verse 7? So it's clear. No one wins the battle with death but God. Now, this section points out to us two realities that I want to just kind of extrapolate for a bit and spend more time talking about. In these 11 verses, two realities surface and emerge. One is a physical reality. We could call it anthropological reality. We could call it the horizontal reality or even the natural reality. It's just the fact that no one buys their way out of death. That's the natural reality of life. Barring the return of Christ, remember, all of us are on a march towards the day of our death. That's the physical reality reality. It doesn't matter what you do. He says here, you can have lands named after you. You can have riches. You can have people boast of your accomplishments. He goes through a a gamut of things that says, Hey, you're really a great, famous, rich, wealthy, accomplished person with notoriety. But in the end, it doesn't matter. The physical reality, the horizontal reality, the anthropological reality, the natural reality is this. You will meet death. There are no exemptions, low and high, rich and poor. Let me illustrate this quite personally for you with two sets of pictures. The first set I'll show you is Ryan Day and George H.W. Bush. Ryan was a member at First Family. His family still is here. His mom, Julie, works on our staff. Just a loved family. Ryan was tragically killed in an ATV accident several years ago. Painful, excruciating uh, time in the life of our church. Young, young 20s. George H.W. Bush died at 94. Very famous. Powerful. Former president. In fact, I would venture to say, when I showed you this set of pictures, more of you knew the man on the right than you did Ryan Day, who was a member of our church. Now, that's just natural because some of you are new. Many of you may have known that. But you know George H.W. Bush, 41, don't you? you're thinking, oh, I don't know the guy on the left. In fact, the male on the right, Bush 41's powerful, famous, internationally known. Uh, Ryan wouldn't be at that level of knownness at all. But watch this. Today, they're both buried in the same state. They're both in Texas. Their bodies physically reside there. They are in the same place physically. Are you with me? You follow that? Death was not a respecter of persons, regardless of age or influence, notoriety or power. None of that mattered. They both met the end of their ordained days. Maybe even more personal with you. This next set of pictures is my father-in-law, Kobe Bryant. My father-in-law, just a few weeks ago, passed away just shy of 93 Kobe Bryant died in January in a tragic helicopter crash. Was about, he was 41. Now, when I think about these two men, I think it's interesting. Uh, my father-in-law, Phil, he lived in one town for 90 of those 92 years. Small town of Adrian, Michigan. He worked primarily one job his whole life. He was a shear operator. And most of those years, he would walk to work. It was that close. He didn't travel a bunch. He was a very contented uh, small town kinda guy, Kobe Bryant probably traveled more in one week of an NBA season in multiple cities and countries than my father-in-law traveled his whole life. In fact, financially speaking, Kobe Bryant made more money in a couple of games than my father-in-law made his whole life. And yet today, they're both in the same place physically. One's buried in Michigan, one's buried in California. So when you think about these pictures, The difference in their ages, their power, their status, their notoriety, their incomes. Just remember, at the end of the day, they all meet at the same place. Solomon would say this to us from a horizontal perspective. He would admit this reality exists. Ecclesiastes 3.20. All go to one place. All are from the dust And to dust all return. You see, no one buys their way out of death with money, success, fame, power, notoriety, accomplishment. Nobody changes the eternal through the external. No one. And such is the case for everyone here. Everyone. There's also a spiritual reality that's addressed in this section. We could call this a supernatural reality, perhaps a theological reality, however you want to word it. It's addressed here as well. And it's really succinctly stated in verse 15, our take home verse for this week, which says that God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol. And he uses the word but there to indicate in the middle of all of these people who think that perhaps an external can solve the eternal, he says there's really only one way, but God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol for he'll receive me. He makes quite an exclusive claim here. There's nothing general about this. There's nothing politically correct. There's nothing that says, well, there's options. He makes a very exclusive, narrow statement that there's only one way out of the power of death. It's God. Now, It makes sense then that after saying that, he would ask for us to pause. Do you see the word selah next to verse 15 in your Bible? It's a musical term, expression to pause and think. And this is a rightful place for us to pause and think because of the exclusivity of this statement. He's saying basically, essentially, without any ambiguity, that there's only one way to avoid the place of death which he terms here a Sheol, and that is through God. Now, a word about the... Psalm 30. It's used about 60 to 70 times in the Old Testament. A third of those are in the Psalms, and it's generally thought of as, as the place of the dead in the Old Testament. It would be roughly analogous to Hades of the New Testament. Now... There is mixed opinion about who went to Sheol. I'll just share this with you briefly. Some And and both of these are are God-fearing, Bible-believing Christians, okay? So don't think that one makes you a heretic. There's just different opinions on this. Some believe that Sheol was the place of all the dead. And there are some verses that could indicate that. Some of the patriarchs are said to, or is written about the patriarchs, that perhaps they were going to the place of the dead. And so some believe it's where all all dead Old Testament people went. Others believe it's the place of the unrighteous dead. And there are verses that would lean into that way of thinking, such as this one here in Psalm 49, as well as the story Jesus told of the rich man and Lazarus, which was pre-resurrection of Christ, in which he says the rich man lifted up his eyes in Hades or hell, but but, uh, Lazarus was in Abraham's bosom. And so... I tend to land, I'm about a 70, 30 right now, that Sheol was the place of the unrighteous dead. But I will admit to you, there's some good arguments for the other side. And man, those who see it differently will shake hands and have coffee and be friends. Amen? That's right, amen? Amen. That's right. Because wherever you land on how you see Sheol, it doesn't change the point of the text here, which is this. How is one rescued from this place and its power? And the writer here is solving his very own riddle. It's in musical form. We don't know how it went tune wise, right? But he says here clearly God is the only one who provides the way out of death. And so the spiritual reality is greater than the physical reality. Don't miss this, church. The the supernatural overcomes the natural, the theological overrules the anthropological. That's what he's saying here in this verse. Only the eternal one can solve our eternal issues. Now I want to pause here and continue to, to have you in this moment of the Selah, this thinking about what he's written. I want us to think even more intensely about what he said here. Because he did not say this, listen, with every ear you've got, especially kids, Every teenager, elementary person, college, should, listen very carefully. The writer did not say this. Everyone lives somewhere forever. He did not say that. What the writer said under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is this. Everyone meets death and then God's people live forever somewhere. And the rest actually die somewhere forever. You see, the issue is not between a decent life apart from God and a great life with God. That's not the issue. The contrast is eternal death separated from God or eternal life with God. The true issue is eternal life versus eternal death. And I just want to make sure that we theologically, clearly, biblically, make sure you understand that this is what's being addressed here. That unless God intervenes and you trust in him and he rescues you from death, you will then eternally die forever. The Bible in the New Testament would teach this, by the way. Romans 6.23 is a place to start in which Paul records these words. The wages of sin is what? Church, say it with me. Yeah. Death. And he means there, yes, physical death ultimately, but it also means then spiritual death Ultimately. But the free gift of God is eternal, what? Life in Jesus Christ, our Lord. So it's a myth, it's a cultural myth to say this. Hey, we all live somewhere forever. As if you can just kind of like two options, one's a little better than the other. That's actually incorrect, that's not true. You either live with God forever or you die apart from God forever. And I hope this really rattles you a bit. I hope it causes you first of all to examine your own soul and faith and perhaps it ups your compassion for those who don't know Christ. The stakes are very high, church. To further help us understand what this idea of death means, John would echo what Paul said in Revelation 21:8 when he says that dying spiritually is called the second death. And it's for those who are the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, the murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, the idolaters, the liars... They all have their portion in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. I know this isn't politically correct. It can be a little traumatic at times, like, wow, but you need to hear, and I need to hear this truth, that we're not arguing between two lives. We're we're actually pleading with you to think about what's ahead, and that without God, you not only die once, you then die twice. Christ would describe it this way in the New Testament. He would say that Without me, you go to the place where the worm never dies and the fire's not quenched. In other words, you are always in the process of continually dying. You're trying to pay for your own sins in a place called hell. But because you're finite and unholy, you can never meet God's wrath against sin. So you're just consistently, eternally, and continually in the process of dying. Remember the rich man in Lazarus? He lifted up his eyes in hell... He remembered, he was conscious, he was aware, and yet he wasn't dead, but he was dead. You see, this is what's at stake. It's eternal death or eternal life. And I would urge you pastorally, I would urge you humanly to give great consideration to the truth of the Bible, that there is only one who provides a way out of death, and that is God. I think the writer here in this Psalm, as he paused to think about this, it caused him to rejoice and to leave that place of questioning, unfounded fear. And so his response to the riddle in verses 16 through 20 is really clear. Don't be afraid of anyone, even your own death or anyone's success. Just don't be afraid. Let's finish the chapter, can we? Here's how verse 16 begins. Here's the writer's response to the reality of the riddle. Be not afraid then when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house increases. For when he dies, he will carry nothing away. In other words, what you're seeing when you think they're negotiating with death, when you think they've kind of bypassed it, that maybe death plays favorites, don't worry. They carry none of that as a way to pay the price. None of that currency works. His glory will not go down after him for though while he lives, he counts himself blessed. And though you get praise when you do well for yourself, his soul will go to the generation of his fathers who will never again see light. In other words, the external will never solve the eternal. And he quotes again in verse 20, what he said earlier in verse 12, man in his pomp yet without understanding is like the beasts that perish And it does no good eternally to rack up a life of achievement and accomplishment and wealth and notoriety and fame and power because when you die, that's never the currency God's looking for. So the writer here is like, man, if if only God delivers and nothing that I do or have, that then drives away the fear he mentioned in verse five. And I won't be afraid so right now, if you're a believer, I hope your heart's enlarged with joy. That though sometimes that wonder comes in your head and you have that silent moment of temptation, like man, maybe it is a matter of who has the most stuff. No, it's not. God is alone, the conqueror of death. And he will ransom and keep your life. And he will receive you. That brings us joy and drives out fear. I think the natural question then is this, how does God do that? I mean, it's one thing to rhetorically just state the fact, right? We agree with that. We hold to this truth, but it's a legitimate question. How does God override and overrule death? Let's go back to our take home verse. The answer is in there. Verse 15, make sure your eyes are on the text with me there's a special word that I think is is incredibly important. Verse 15, but God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol for he will receive me. The word is ransom. It's not an accidental use of the word. It's the third time it's used in this psalm. And I think it's a subtle, maybe I should say not so subtle. (laughs) It's a subtle prophetic messianic reference. Christ would say later in Mark, he would say that he came to give his life as a ransom and what the writer here is alluding to is that there is a price to be paid. You'll notice in the Psalm, he says that no man can pay that price. That's around verse 7, 8, and 9. But there is a price to be paid that overcomes death. So who has paid the price? And by the use of the word ransom, he alludes to the coming Messiah, to Christ who gave his life as a ransom and paid the price for all who'd believe. Now watch this. Hebrews 2, nine says this, that Christ tasted death for every man. So when Jesus Christ, the Messiah came and lived the perfect life and then died in your place, he tasted the death you should have died and you should die, the eternal death, that one that's separated from God, that one that's because of your sin. Jesus Christ bore all of the sin in his body on the tree. He tasted death for all who would believe. This is what Jesus Christ has done. He was sent by God for this express purpose. And so because Christ has tasted death, and paid the ransom, God now says, for all who believe, they'll be raised like Christ, and they won't die the second death. They will live eternally. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 15, 20, Paul refers to Christ and his resurrection as the first fruits of all who would believe. So because Christ rose, you will rise. See what's happening here? God, found in Christ's death, Every bit of the payment to satisfy his wrath against sin. And so he raised his son from the dead. And in doing so, he guaranteed that all who would believe in him would not taste death either. Who paid the ransom so that God could keep his promise and deliver us from the power of Sheol? Jesus did. At the cross and at the tomb, Jesus paid the ransom. So let's understand something, church. When anyone takes their stand on the gospel and they trust in Jesus' death and resurrection, God applies Christ's work to their account. He applies Christ's payment to their debt. Jesus Christ has paid the price of death, and his riches cover your poverty. And this is why God will receive you because Christ has ransomed you, he has paid the price. You could never pay. Again, here's the two realities. No man can buy their way out of death, but God provides the only way out of death. Look what Jesus said in John eleven twenty five. 25. He personalizes every bit of this same truth from Psalm 49 by saying this to Mary, to Mary and Martha. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. I think in this verse, he actually substantiates and affirms those two realities. He says, eh, physically, if you do die, don't worry, you're going to live. But in the last part of this, these two verses, he says, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. So spiritually, you're never going to die. It's an amazing uh, uh, couplet of truths that are hard to grasp, but they're only possible because of God and Christ. And by the way, when we see what Christ said here in John 11, and we look back at Psalm 49, we see that this take-home verse and this musical riddle, man, it is completely gospel-tethered. And sometimes we have this false notion that the gospel is mainly a New Testament thing, but I would say, do you mean the gospel is just is, is the thread that runs through the Old Testament? And here we have this beautiful messianic reference that Christ will come and pay the ransom so God will deliver us from death. So our chapter today, our take home verse, man, it's gospel-centered, gospel-hinged, gospel-tethered. No doubt, God's interruption of death swings on Christ embracing his own death. In the simplest of words, church, hear this. Because he died, you don't have to. And because he lives, you get to. What I hope is happening in this moment is that there are young people, eight-year-olds, 15-year-olds, 21-year-olds, who are thinking, okay, maybe I'm not Mr. Invincible after all. And by the way, I don't fault you for that. When you're young, you you don't think about death. When you're living your life, it seems like it'll never end. It's gonna be grand. And, And some of that's actually very good but perhaps it is healthy to pause for a moment even when you're young and realize, I'm not promised tomorrow. What if I were to die? Am I ready to meet the Lord? If you were to die and meet the Lord, all the currency of your sports, your talents, your family's name will not work with the Lord. Only the blood of Jesus. And maybe older folks here Maybe there are folks who are either listening and watching online. Maybe you're here in this room. Maybe you're upstairs in our youth room. Maybe you feel the, the knocking of death. That's how close you are. You're ill. You know that the disease or illness is set in. Or maybe you're just by age alone feeling like, man, I'm, I'm creeping closer. But right now, your heart is rejoicing that you know that is not the end. That you have trusted Christ and he has your soul and he has power over Sheol. And he will receive you because he has ransomed you. I hope that across the age spectrum, God's word is doing its part and just massaging our hearts and turning our eyes towards him. Let me land the plane with a simple illustration that I think will summarize all this very well. Before Billy Graham died, he, is, he said this, and I quote, Someday you will read or hear that Billy Graham is dead. Don't you believe a word of it? I shall be more alive than I am now. I will have just changed my address. I will have gone into the presence of God. That's the confidence that we have from Psalm 49, 15. And this is what he was standing on and singing from as he entered glory. And this is what you and I can stand on and sing from as well. So church, would you with me stand and let's read our take home verse today. And let's rejoice in the power of God over death. That sin has lost its, cur- its grip on me. Its curse is gone, which is death. And God now has ransomed us and he will receive us together. Church, Psalm 49:15. But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me.